Cool guys. So welcome to School of the Bible. We're back. Um, I know some of you are new, but we've been going through some of the books of the Bible. We've finished a section of the law books and we have finished the historical books. So the law books include uh, Genesis, Exodus, up until Deuteronomy. And then we looked at books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, Joshua, all those books. And now we're looking properly at the wisdom literature, right? So we did Psalms and uh, uh, Mike took us through Psalms the last time we met. But I think, I don't think he explained why this part of scripture is called wisdom literature, right? So why are these books wisdom literature? And these books being the Proverbs, uh, the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So traditionally, because of the emphasis on understanding and attaining wisdom for all areas of life, including our relationship with God and with one another. That's why these were called wisdom literature. Another way to look at it is wisdom, wisdom literature deals with the way that the world works. So this section of the Bible is not as focused on dates and names and events like books like Kings and Chronicles and Joshua and Numbers are. The law books and the historical books were full of that kind of literature, right? But this part of scripture is more focused on the human experience and the topic of wisdom. And wisdom in scripture can be defined as how to live and flourish in God's world, right? That is why we were given the wisdom literature, so that we can know how to live and flourish in God's world. And it's summarized in Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7, which says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. And we live in God's world, right? We live in God's world. God made it. How can we be faithful to him? And how can we live a biblically prosperous life? Well, it's by living our lives on God's terms, right? That is wisdom. And wisdom literature teaches us where to find wisdom and what wisdom looks like. Now, there's several forms of wisdom literature. The most common one is what we call Proverbs, right? And in the Bible, we have the book of Proverbs. So those are your short, kind of smart, pithy sayings, right? Sometimes they are called aphorisms. And there's many of them in scripture, but there's also many of them in every culture. So every culture has Proverbs. The Japanese, for example, will say, the tongue is three inches long, yet it can kill a man six feet high. Or they'll say the reputation of 1,000 years may be determined by the conduct of one hour. And they also say we learn little from victory, but we learn much from defeat. In, in Ghana, they will say the ruin of a nation begins in the homes of its people. And here locally we have Ubuntu, right? I am because you are. That's a proverb. Every culture has its own proverbs. It's interesting that you will hear proverbs from other cultures and you will instantly know the meaning of it. But some proverbs, you need to know something of that culture to get the meaning of the proverb. And that is the case with scripture as well. That's why it helps to know context and uh, all that good stuff. So often these proverbs will have an element of natural revelation or common grace. And what that means is you don't have to be a Christian to come up with it. Right? You'll find that many of the proverbs in the Bible are not really unique to the Bible. Right? You find the same proverbs in pagan cultures. But what you do find in scripture is that there are two types of wisdom. The wisdom of God's people 
and the wisdom of the world. So, you know, scripture will say, um, go to the end, you sluggard, you know, go to the end, you lazy person. And that is a proverb from scripture. But it's going to have a different meaning to a believer than to an unbeliever because we are dealing with God's word and the wisdom of Christ. Um, but we'll see more of that when we look at Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. But tonight, for wisdom literature, we'll start with the book of Job. And then next session uh, on Thursday, we will look at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. So normally, here at School of the Bible, we go sequentially through the Bible, right? If you open your Bible, you see that Job and Ecclesiastes are not next to each other. But I'm breaking the sequence here because... When, we are do when you look at Job and Ecclesiastes, they go very well together, at least like thematically, right? They, they both deal with wisdom in almost the same sense. What Job and Ecclesiastes show us is they show us life when the Proverbs don't work. All the Proverbs and the practical things that the Bible teaches us about how to flourish in God's world, they fall apart when we get to the book of Job and Ecclesiastes. It all falls apart. And that's the purpose of these books. It's life in the extremes, right? For example, the Proverbs will say, if you work hard, things will go well. But is that always the case? Is that always true? It's not, right? Proverbs will say, um, um, right, the righteous prosper, but the wicked experience pain and suffering. Is that always true? It's not, right? It tends to be the opposite. You tend to see the wicked, you see... The evil flourish and you see the righteous people suffer and go through difficulties. And that's why we have the book of Job and Ecclesiastes. What they deal with is life outside of the smooth path, right? They deal with life in the extremities when life just doesn't seem to make sense and doesn't um, follow, you know, what, what we think should happen. So let's look specifically at, at the book of Job, right? That was a quick, brief introduction into wisdom literature and um, what we expect to find there. So the book of Job itself is very ancient, right? We don't know exactly when this book was written, but the story itself is an ancient story. Job is a man who loves the Lord and he is living, he lives around the same time as Abraham. So he was around at the time of the patriarchs. Some people have said it's one of the first books written in scripture around 2000 BC. So it's a very old book. The reason they say that is because firstly, the kind of language that is used, right? The kind of language that's used is very old. Um, and secondly, if you look at uh, the place that all of this happens. So chapter one, verse one will say there was a man in the land of Uz. And the, that place Uz is outside the promised land where God's people would be living. Also, um, it is before the time of the priesthood. So if you were here before, we looked at the priesthood and the laws that were set up for the nation of Israel. And there were Levitical sacrifices that were done by the priest. But what you see in Job is Job himself goes and offers sacrifices for his sons instead of priests. So this was before even the nation of Israel was, est was established. So it's very ancient. And yet, here is a man, Job, who loves the Lord. And the book deals with the problem of evil and the justice of God. Why do bad things happen to the righteous? Right? Job is a faithful man who loses everything. In our natural worldview, this kind of thing only happens to evil people. In the end, the book doesn't actually answer the question of why the righteous suffer. But it does turn the focus to God, who is in control. 
So this book presents, first of all, a problem to the word of faith movement or the prosperity movement. And I say that because the premise of that movement is if you have faith, nothing bad will happen to you. The argument is if things go wrong in your life, why do they go wrong? It's because of sin in your life, right? Uh, it's because if you are not healthy and wealthy and living your best life, it is your fault, basically. And so you'll find that people who hold to that, those kinds of beliefs, who hold to that doctrine, they try to disprove the book of Job. They try to do that by trying to make Job a sinner. So there's a man called Frederick Price, and he's a word of faith teacher. And he said, as long as Job walked in faith, the wall, the wall of protection, the hedge was up. But when he started walking in unbelief and doubt, then the hedge was pulled down, right? There was no protection from him, for him. And that's what the word of faith movement says, because they need to find something Job did wrong so that they can explain why all these things are happening to Job and that it's his fault. Otherwise, if they don't do that, Job's experience discredits much of their theology and exposes it as being blasphemous. But the Bible is clear. When you read Job, it's clear that Job does not sin. It emphasizes this, right? It doesn't mean that he was sinless. He's still human. And Romans tells us, the book of Romans tells us that none are righteous, not one. The Bible is clear about that. But what the Bible means by this is that there is no reason for Job to go through that, which was his own fault, right? Sometimes bad things do happen to us because of our sin, right? If you speed and you get a, a ticket, a fine, you can't say the government is persecuting you. You did something wrong, so you must deal with it. If you are lazy and you fail your final exam, you can't look to the book of Job to be your comfort during that trial, right? Sin has consequences. And while the Lord is merciful to us, sometimes, even then in his grace, he lets us suffer the consequences of our sin. But here, the Holy Spirit goes to great lengths to show that this is not the situation that is occurring with Job. So let's start, let's start going through the book. We're going we're gonna, to so keep your Bibles open if you have it. Um, we'll be paging from chapter 1 to the last chapter. right? So starting with chapter 1, verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So we get an introduction to Job, his family, and uh, his wealth. And then verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So you see Job is offering sacrifices for his family. And then we get a fascinating insight as to what happens behind the scenes, right, in the heavens. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So in this context, the sons of God is referring to the angels, angelic beings. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. I need someone, someone just join and I need them to, to meet themselves. Who's Rama Aruma? Okay, I hope you guys can still hear me. Um, and if you're not muted, just please mute yourself. Okay, so... Um, 
Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, right? And from walking up and down on it. So it's important to remember that Satan is not omnipresent, right? He is not like God. He's a created being just like us, just like you and me. He's more powerful than us and very beautiful and very clever, but he is not omnipresent, right? He can't read our minds and see our thoughts. Um, Yes. Ramarumo. Guys, does anyone know who Ramarumo is? I don't know who he is or she is. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay, thank you. He muted himself. If you hover over the picture, then it says on the. Yeah. So I don't have I don't have I don't have admin rights on this group, Carla. So I can't meet people. Okay, but I think we're good for now. Okay, let's soldier on. Right, I hope. Oh, by the way, guys, if you have any comments, questions, please feel free to stop me um, and, you know, say what needs to be said. And yeah, please don't hesitate to do that. Okay, getting back to Satan, right? We're on verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. So it's important to remember Satan is not omnipresent, right? And here he's been going around to and fro on the planet. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So who is it that brings up Job in the whole situation? It's God, right? Uh, It's not Satan who brings up Job. It is the Lord himself who brings him up. Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So what is Satan saying there? Why does Job fear God? He's telling God that the only reason why Job fears you and serves you is because of what you have given him. Right? It's because you have given him the nice things in life. He only loves you because he has a soft life. So who is this really an attack on? If you think about it, it's an attack on God, right? In what way? If a man is rich and he has a wife and someone goes up to the wife and says, well, the only reason why you're with him is because he has money and he gets you German cars and Gucci bags, designer clothes, jewelry, whatever the case may be. That may be true for the wife, but if she really loves that man, she would say, even if we lost everything tomorrow, I would stay with that person because he's more valuable to me than all these things, right? Satan is saying, you're not that good, God. Your followers only follow you because you look after them. You're nice to them. You bribe them, basically. But you're not so amazing that people will say they're willing to lose everything as long as they have God, right? Your people, God, are not willing to say, I will lose my possessions, my health, my family, my friends, my job, my comfort, my status and reputation as long as I have God. So while the book is called the book of Job and the main focus whenever this book is discussed is Job's suffering, the actual focus of the book is the glory of God. It's the beauty of God. Is he worth worshipping even when things go wrong? Is he worthy? Right? And the book of Job says, of course he is. So verse 12, 
And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So you see also the sovereignty of God. Satan cannot do what he wants, right? God puts restraints on what he can and cannot do. And so Satan goes out and begins to wreck Job's life. In a day, he loses his children and all his servants, all his livestock, all his wealth and possessions. It's just wave after wave of bad news for him. A servant comes and tells him that all the other servants have been killed. And whilst that servant is delivering that news, another one comes and tells him that the cattle have been taken. And then another with the news of his children dying. And verse 20, in verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge, or charge God with wrong. So you see how Job responds. He responds with faith. And he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So notice also who Job is saying is doing this to him. Does he say that it is Satan? He says, It's the Lord. Right. He says the Lord is given, it's the Lord who's taken away. Right. So Job understands the sovereignty of God. There may be a devil, but he is God's devil. Right. As Christians, we need to be intensely aware that there is a devil. There are demons and there are literal beings and they are out to destroy us. But the bad that happens to us is not ultimately because of Satan. Right. Um, Charles Spurgeon, <coughs> excuse me, Charles Spurgeon suffered with lifelong depression as well as physical problems his whole life he had to deal with physical and emotional pain but he said this he said if the depression did not come from my heavenly father i would not be able to bear it right because if the bad things that didn't happen sorry if the, if the bad things that happened didn't come from god what would it say about our god it would say that he's not sovereign he can't protect us he's not in control but the story doesn't end there so just turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to fast his integrity, although you incited him against me, uh, me against him, sorry, to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So Satan says, that is fine, you know, but people are like that as long as they have their health. But touch his flesh, touch his bones and he will curse you to your face. Right? Take away his health and he will curse you to your face. And verse 6, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So God tells Satan, spare his life, don't kill him. In verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loads and sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. So she, she also says it's too much. Just curse God and die. Right? His wife is of no support to him. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So now we're going to be introduced to these three friends of Job who are going to give us their wisdom to the situation. They've come to see Job and to support him and they are shocked and in horror to see the state that he is in. Right? They don't even recognize him. 
Verse 12, And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Uh, sorry, there's someone who's uses iPhone. Please just mute yourself. There's no actual name. Okay. So. Can yes. I ask you a question? Sure, sure, Kenji. Can you hear me? Clearly? I can hear you loud and clear. Um, yeah, so just in the chapter one, sorry to go back a bit. Sure. So when Job addressed, uh, in verse 21, when he said, Naked I come from a mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Um, am I correct in saying he's using Yahweh's name there? Um, would that then say that God revealed his personal name to Job, as he did to Moses. So this is verse, sorry? Um, sorry, verse 21. I'm just wondering, because yeah. I'm seeing that he's using the yeah. the name Lord in all caps. Yes. So yeah, that is referring to God's covenant name. So yeah, it does suggest that. Um, okay. And, it's, it's interesting, because even when God revealed himself with that name to Moses, he said, I didn't even reveal myself like this to your fathers, Abraham. Mm. Um, Isaac and Jacob, but I revealed myself with this name to you. Anyway, I was just asking. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting, and I think I'll say more on that, like as we get to later chapters. Okay, sorry. No, sorry no, no, it's fine. Preempt. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> okay, so, um, uh, his his friends, Job's friends, come along, and you know they sit with him, and um, at this time when his friends are just quiet and are grieving with him. In the whole account is probably when the friends of Job are at their most helpful, right? The seven days when they just keep quiet, when they don't say a word. That's when they are at their most helpful. Chapter 3, Job finally opens his mouth and really he screams, right? This is an outburst. It's like a rant. Uh, he curses the day that he was born. Because the Proverbs are not working, right? The simple answers don't fit in this situation. He hasn't done anything evil. And yet his whole life in a couple of days is completely destroyed. Put yourself in his shoes and you'll see a man who's lost everything. He's lost his children. He's bankrupt. He lo he's lost his health. He's covered in sores, um, which is incredibly painful, right? He's dealing with physical pain. Um, and when you get sick, when you get a cold or a flu, it affects us spiritually, right? You've experienced that, right? Often we feel spiritually down when we are physically down. Um, if you're familiar with the story of the prophet Elijah in the book of Kings, I think at some point he's fleeing from Jezebel and he gets to a place of, of rest and he's so depressed. He's just depressed. And he says to God, it's enough now. Just take my life away. Right. He's telling God, like, I don't want to live anymore. And what does God do? He sends an angel to give him food and water and he gets some sleep. And then when he wakes up, he's all good again. Right. Elijah was physically down, and as a result, he was spiritually down to the point of even wanting death. So, you know, all that to say, like, our physical state tends to affect us spiritually. And I think we've all experienced something of that. So you can imagine what Job is going through. Job is covered in sores from head to toe, and he doesn't understand why. Why all the pain? What's going on here? Why all the suffering? And so he says, I wish I'd never been born. And so in chapter 4... His friends start to talk and we have this dialogue um, going on from chapter 3 until chapter 27. 
And what the friends do is they give him proverbial wisdom. And what do they say? If, if you guys have, have read this account, you'll know that the main thing that his friends say to him is that because this is happening to you, you must have sinned, right? You have done something, something wrong, and now you're suffering the consequences of it, right? What would Proverbs say? The righteous uh, enjoy God's blessings, but the wicked suffer, right? You have been wicked, Job. You are not blameless in this situation. Bad things equals sin. Uh, and some of this proverbial wisdom his friends give him. Um, let's go to chapter 11. So just turn to chapter 11 with me quickly. So chapter 11, firstly, one of his friends says, verse 6, And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding, knowing then that God exacts of you less than the than your guilt deserves. So Zophar, one of Job's friends, tells Job that he deserves worse than what he's dealing with right now. Right? And then he says, verse 13, If you prepare your heart, you will, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not justice dwell in your tents. Verse 16, you will forget your misery and you will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. In verse 19, you will lie down and, not, and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All the way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last. So basically what Zophar is saying here is just repent of your sins and all will go away. Right? If you've read this account before, you will get the sense that we're not going anywhere here. One guy talks and the next talks, but he's basically saying the same thing that the other guy said. He's just he's just using different words, right? And they just keep going in circles. Uh, Job keeps saying, I did not sin, right? I agree with you that if I had sinned, then this would be a problem, but I haven't. You know, it's not my fault that this is happening to me. And so in chapter 12, Job says, if you go to chapter 12, verse 2, So Job says, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you am not, am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? So he's saying, Job is saying to his friends, you guys are so smart. You know everything. You have all the wisdom in the world. So when you die, it will die with you, right? And then he tells them that God has brought this about. He did not sin because he knows God is sovereign, right? Um, and he's like, you don't know that God is sovereign? Well, verse 7, Job says, But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. And he says, verse 13, With God are wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. So Job basically has to keep defending himself, and you're supposed to get the frustrated feeling, the sense that this is not helping. Right? Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, this is not helping, guys. Job wish, basically wishes that these three friends of his would shut up, right? Because they are missing the point of what is going on. You and I, as readers, have the privilege of seeing what is going on behind the scenes, right? You and I have chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we see what the Lord is doing through Satan. But remember, they didn't. Neither Job nor his friends. And the Lord doesn't even reveal it to Job at the end. Job never finds out why he had to suffer, right? But you are to get the idea that Proverbs is not working. It's not enough. 
because if you go and read what the friends are saying, is it actually bad? You'll find that it isn't, right? Often it would be the right thing to say. It's the right piece of advice. Um, if I steal a phone and I get in trouble with with the, the authorities or whatever, the right advice would be, you need to repent. You have you have done something wrong. You have stolen. You need to repent. You need to take whatever it is that you took back to make it right. That wisdom would be correct. Job's friends have very good theology, but in this situation, it's not working. It's not going anywhere. And so if we jump all the way down to chapter 22 with me, in chapter 22, his friends insist that Job has sinned and is too proud to confess, right? He's too proud to say that he has done wrong. So chapter 22, verse 5, Is not your evil abundant? There is no need, there is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. So Job keeps on pleading his innocence, but eventually he starts to become resentful, right? He starts to become bitter. He has, he has a, a Proverbs mindset, but now he flips it around. He says, well, if I haven't sinned and bad things are happening to me, maybe God has messed up, right? What's God doing? You know, like someone needs to check and, and, and weigh, the, weigh the scales because it can't be me. So it must be God who's in the wrong here. And verse, sorry, chapter 23, if you go to chapter 23, verse 2 says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him, speaking of God, and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. I want to plead my case to God. I want to be face to face with him and find out what's going on. Right? That's what Job is saying. And remember, Satan had said, all the way back in chapter two, chapter 2, he will curse you to your face. And now Job is saying, I want to see God. I want to speak to him face to face. Maybe God has got it wrong here. I want an audience with God. And so in chapter 28, we get to the crux. We get to the essence of the whole book. So turn there with me. So in chapter 28, I don't know about your Bibles, my, my version. My, my, my version, the heading at the top says, where is wisdom? So rem remember, this is wisdom literature, right? Um, we want to know what is the source of wisdom. Where do we find it? And in chapter 28, it's, it's really a beautiful passage of scripture. Right? Job says, verse 1, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limits. And then verse 12, if you jump to verse 12, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. So it's amazing, amazing poetry. Uh, the imagery is stunning, and a lot of commentators, a lot of 
biblical commentators have said, this is the high point of literature in the whole of the Bible, right? So where is wisdom to be found? Look at verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And the answer is in verse 23. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. And if we go further down to verse 28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So every culture right, has proverbs, work hard and things will go well for you. Don't be lazy and you won't go poor, etc., etc. And people all over the world eventually figure out all the proverbs of life. Right. It's the world's wisdom. But that is not ultimate because it doesn't explain what Job is going through. Only true wisdom can and true wisdom is with God. So how do we explain that? Well, remember, we want to see how Christ is seen in every book we go through. Right. How do we see Jesus in the book of Job? Think of First Corinthians uh, chapter one, verse 30, where it says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Right. So if you are a Christian, then Christ has become unto us wisdom. Christ is our wisdom. And we will see this more clearly in the book of Proverbs, where wisdom is personified as Christ. So where do we find wisdom in Christ? And that is how you truly flourish in God's world. So just quickly turn with me back to chapter 26. So just two chapters back. Okay, chapter 26. Uh, Job is talking about the greatness of God, right? And if you look at verse 12, he says, By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind and heavens, by, sorry, by his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So in that short passage there, Rahab is not referring to Rahab, the harlot who we read about in the book, book of Joshua. Rahab was also a term for a dragon, and it was a term of chaos and anger for many of the pagan cultures around the time, right? So for many of the cultures around the time, Rahab was a type of monster in their mythologies, kind of like how we have uh, like a Godzilla today. So Rahab is really a picture of the serpent, of Satan it says by his understanding he shattered evil and what does that remind you of if you were here when we looked at Genesis right the first gospel promise is in Genesis 3 15 right the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent that's gospel imagery and here in Job it says by his wisdom God destroys the devil and when we get to the New Testament we will see that God's wisdom is incredible it's mind-blowing right no human could ever think of it that is why belief faith in christ is impossible for the natural man because it is completely counterintuitive to our nature it was in weakness that god defeats satan right he comes as a man allows himself to be stripped naked and crucified but in that very weakness and humiliation he's winning right in defeat in seeming defeat he's winning he's destroying the devil he's crushing Rahab, right? So you can see there that there is a difference between what scripture calls the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Christ is where you go to for true wisdom, godly wisdom. 
So how are you truly going to flourish in God's world? Well, you need to know Christ. Remember, Job is a man who prospers even though everything goes wrong, right? But Jesus was a man who prospered even though in our reasoning, by our logic and standards, everything goes horribly wrong for Jesus, right? He gets betrayed, he gets forsaken, everyone leaves him. He's spat on and mocked and he gets crucified and yet he's the wisest man who ever lived. So it's important to remember that in Christ is where you find wisdom, right? Um, turning away from evil is true understanding. So in chapter sorry, in chapter 32, right, moving closer to the, the end where God comes and speaks, we are introduced to another man named Elihu, and it turns out that he was sitting there the whole time, right? So chapter 32, verse 4, now it says, Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three, he burned with anger. So this is a young man, whereas the, other, the others are older. The older men are speaking from wisdom gained in their experience, right? Elihu speaks not so much from experience, but from revelation. So Elihu is kind of like a prophet. He's got insight through a vision or a dream. And he says that that wisdom comes from somewhere else. But even he doesn't get it right, right? Because he ends up saying that it's Job's fault when it's really not the case. And then if we jump down to chapter 38, the Lord then deals with Job, right? So Chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Verse 16. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for that, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, distributed or, where the, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? So God is asking Job all of these questions, right? And how, how, does, Job, how does Job respond to this? He's humbled. So if you go to chapter 40, Chapter 40, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job promises to keep quiet. You can imagine he was hoping that it was over, right? That God was done with questioning him. But in verse 6 of chapter 40, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man, right? So God is like, I'm not done with you. And verse 15, says, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. 
so that above passage seems to be an argument for like dinosaurs right when god created everything he also made dinosaurs as well and humans uh, and humans and dinosaurs used to live together right that's that's one of the views uh, that come from this passage and the rest of that chapter he's talking about the strength of these animals and how they are so powerful and if job is if job is powerful enough to stop them and control them right so the lord continues to question job and so Coming to a, a closing, right? I don't know if you noticed this, but does God answer Job's question? He doesn't actually answer it at all, right? But notice how Job responds to all of this in chapter 42. So in chapter 42, verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So, these are the words of a man who is just broken before the Lord. Right? Job is repentant. Even though the Lord doesn't answer his question, Job says he knows the Lord better. So notice what he says there in verse 5, right? At first I heard about you, but now I have actually seen you. So do you see what he's saying there? The whole process of suffering and bringing Job to that place of loss and tragedy caused him to know God better than before, right? I, I don't, he's like, I don't know why you did it, but I know you better and I fall down and worship you, right? And that's quite amazing because what does God do? God takes Job to creation. He's asking him, do you know this? Do you know about um, the earth, right? Do you know about uh, the seas, the winds, the plants? Do you, do you know how this works? Do you know how that works? Um, no. Do you know how I created the world? No. Do you know how the earth keeps suspended? You don't, and yet you want to question me about what I'm doing in your life. So we trust God with all these other things in nature, right? In creation. You don't wake up worried and stressed if the earth is falling off of its rotation axis. Uh, you don't worry that the trees will no longer produce oxygen or that the moon will no longer create waves in the ocean or whether the lions will be able to, to find prey. Right? We are not stressing about those things. We trust the Lord with it, even if it's implicit. And that is how God answers. He says, Job, I am in control of everything, everything greater than you, everything bigger than you. Right? Because I'm in control of all these other things, you can trust the Lord will be in control of your life. Right? And so what the book of Job does is it shows us that there are going to be times in your life and in my life where there will be suffering. And there will be no easy answer as to why, right? And that that is probably half of the difficulty or half the battle. We never know why sometimes. Firstly, um, what you can get from this is if you know someone who is going through those experiences, you need to be careful on how you counsel them. Don't be like Job's comforters. Don't go to people and say, you must have sinned. That's why you had a car accident and now you're paralyzed. Uh, you have sinned. That's why your child felt sick and died. Sometimes just being with the person is enough. 
You don't always need to have a clever answer and a solution. In fact, that's when Job's friends were most helpful, when they were quiet, right? And you will find that as well in some situations, that even when you are going through trials, that you don't even need the right theological answer because oftentimes you know it. Oftentimes we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is good. You don't need to come to someone and, and, and give them a Bible study. And this book shows us that we can still trust God because he's in control of everything. And the fact that God brought, brought Job through the suffering and in the end, Job's experience of God was greater at the end speaks volumes, right? And just pay careful attention uh, to the language that Job uses. You know, at first I heard about you, but now I have seen you, right? His experience of God is that much deeper to the point of going from hearing about God to seeing him. Charles Spurgeon once said that there is no greater gift that the good Lord can give you than good health, except maybe sickness, right? And that's an amazing quote because um, in our good health and in our joy and happiness, we tend to forget God, right? We tend to forget um, that all the good that we have in our life is from God and that he has given us. But when we get sick, when things go wrong, in our suffering, in our trials, he's the first person we run to. And that is a good thing. And it should be what we do all the time, right? But especially in our suffering and our trials, we as believers, we turn to God and we behold our God. In Psalm 25, Psalm 25 verse 16, the psalmist says this. He says, turn to me, he's saying to God, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So what you can learn from that psalm is that we have a God who is gracious to us when we are lonely and afflicted. We have a God who pulls us from distress when our hearts are troubled. And most amazingly, we have a God who forgives all the sins that our sinful nature afflicts us with. So, we can behold our God uh, through our suffering and our trials. And in beholding our God, we become like our God, right? That's what Second Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18 says. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, right? As we behold, we become. We become what we behold. And through our trials and tribulations, we are being sanctified. Um, Romans, Romans 5 verse 3 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and induces, endurance produces character, uh, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Right? Notice, notice that, that description there. You know, it's, it's becoming Christ-like. And uh, quickly, just because we're running out of time, the last thing I'm going to say is this, that it's very important, very important for you and I to remember that the book of Job is not about Job and his sufferings, right? This book is about God. It shows us that he is worth losing everything for, right? What, what does Jesus say? Remember, Jesus says, if you, if you don't love me more than mother, father, um, children, then you're not you're not worth why you follow him what's the point right is christ not more important than your possessions more important than your wealth 
is he not more important than your relationships, your career, your um, reputation? Is he not more beautiful than all those things, right? Is he worth suffering and losing everything for? Is he worthy, like the song says, right? And God is glorious and is holy and uh, he's amazing and he is. He is worth suffering through all those things, right? Um, okay, so I'm going to end it there. Um, are there any questions?